Songezo Mapepe on SAFM. 17 is the time. We are back here on SAFM. Now, corruption in African countries is hindering economic, political, and social development, imposing major barriers to economic growth, good governance, basic freedoms, and affecting the well-being of individuals, families, even communities, communities going as far as countries themselves. Despite increasing international regulation, corrupt leaders in the continent, Africa, have continued to find ways to enrich themselves using illicit means. The continent's economic development has been stifled by rampant corruption, which has delayed the continent. We have in the past month witnessed interesting developments in the arrests of high-profile politicians and those closely aligned to them. Now, with that said, are these the latest developments at all worth noting? How does this compare to the global phenomenon? And I have my guest, Mr. Nixon Katembo, on the line from the Channel Africa there. He's African Affairs Analyst and Executive Producer. Nixon, good evening. Thank you so much for joining us. Good evening, Songez, and good evening to your listeners. My guest, Mr. Nixon Katembo, will also be quizzed by our, let me call him my co-host, so please do not be surprised there, Nixon, when you get to field a question or engagement from Ivor Chipkin. He's the director of the New South Institute, and we, we're going to have an engagement about corruption on the continent, but I think even before we talk about Africa and corruption, let's give it a global context. I mean, corruption cannot be seen as a black thing. Corruption cannot be seen as an African thing. Yeah, sure, our interest should be Africa because we are the ones directly and immediately affected by it, but it doesn't happen outside a global context, does it? Uh, certainly, uh, corruption have a different dimension uh, to it, uh, particularly with the parties that are involved in corruptions. And uh, the question is here, who, who then define what has been uh, said as to be corrupt activity and under what circumstances. And in many uh, instances when corruption happens, you see that the corruptee with the, 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 those, the corruptee, in other words, the one who deals with corruptions or who, who is a beneficiary of corruption as well, uh, have a say, sort of a relationship. And I, I always say that it's, it's, this, this is a kind of a symbiotic relationship <laughs> that are depending one on, uh, on either side because you cannot have someone who is corrupted without having someone who have corrupted, who... who who or who has initiated corruption for that matter. And we see this on, uh, many at a time on the African continent with our political leaders, um, but also uh, in the global context and the political systems themselves. Uh, uh, we can go as far as looking at the ideological standpoint of, of why corruption is endemic in certain political systems. But capitalism has been argued by many that is uh, in part and parcel is 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 a uh, is in a way uh, have some sort of element of corruption embedded in it because of a kind of a transaction of individualism and the individual companies that uh, get involved in in in, in uh, different transactions uh, whether at a private level or at a state level so um, at the state level, which in this case we are looking at the African <coughs> continent and our leaders, 
you see that uh, many of those leaders uh, first and foremost get involved in, with companies uh, who then want to provide the service to the state, but in turn the backroom discussions on what to get, what need to be done to have those uh, services offered to the people and the for companies that are purported to, to offer services. Uh, then uh, can gain either tenders or uh, being a close proximity to those in power. So so it's in that context that uh, this um, um, uh, uh, corrupt relationships happen. And it is not only African issues, it is in at a global uh, scale so with the many multilateral companies of late uh, being far fined for having been in corruption. Glencoe, uh, for example, I, I just paid about, I think, 180 million U.S. dollars to the Congolese government uh, just a, a, about a week ago uh, for having uh, uh, participated in the corrupt relationship with, that con- with the officials in that country in, in the mining sector. And not only that, uh, Glencoe have been found wanting, you know, the examples of Seinhoff, KPMG, and and many others. Uh, uh, Bain, uh, which was banned, uh, um, banned by, by to do business with the government here and the UK. Uh, so it tells you how much corruption is a, a serious problem globally, not just on the African continent, but globally. Thank you. This is uh, Ivor Chipkin. If I can just jump in here, if you don't mind. You said something I think really, really interesting around this relationship between sort of African governments and, and, and companies. Uh, and this seems to be the sort of the hotbed of, hotbed of corruption lies in that relationship. And it seems to me that there's something interesting that happens in the 1980s and early 1990s. As really, we see it in South Africa and we see it, we see it around the world. It's really the time of a kind of a new model of government. It goes under various names. It comes to South Africa as the new public management. And it's this is kind of the period of Margaret Thatcher, Ronald Reagan, and this idea that states must uh, must give up their roles in, in, in all sorts of areas and must allow, allow if, if not privatize, you must allow business into, into the delivery of services. And we see that dramatically in South Africa. The problem, of course, is with the corruption around tendering and, and uh, tenderpreneurs, et cetera, is precisely around the opening up to this kind of new 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 public management. I wonder if that's something which you're seeing in, on, on the African continent. To what extent you're seeing a kind of shift in the, in, in the way in which African governments operated uh, as, as, as a factor? Well, in the case of the African continent, uh, particularly with, with uh, 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 public management, which you have highlighted, you see that in many ways, when there was an introduction of a new kind of uh, uh, economic policies owing to the, um, the stru- structural adjustment program, in, in other words, where uh, the African states uh, were argued uh, to, to, to let off the, uh, the, the, state, the state hold on, on a certain uh, functions of, of government and therefore allow the private sector or even uh, uh, multilateral corporation and companies to 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 assist the state that the state is incapable of any uh, capacity to do that. So uh, you see that by uh, introducing those uh, changes uh, within the public affairs, it opened up uh, a room for for leaders within the continent. 
uh, in, in in trying to to get standards and uh, you know get uh, uh, a relationship with these companies to to also allow corruption to thrive and in way in that way public money in most cases are swindled in that manner and you see those who are uh, close proximity to power then uh, are self-enriching themselves and then you wonder why uh, and in many cases you, you have seen of lately now because of the the, the 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 contestation among the ruling elite when one elite is out of power the other one comes up on a, riding on a wave of fighting corruption therefore Nixon, let me interrupt uh, you there let, 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 i mean uh, we we do not have much time we literally have nine minutes to go and we've only had two questions put in so we're going to try and speed it up a bit there but is democracy in the South African context, for instance, or democracy as we have come to accept it, that is rolling elections periodically, four years, five years by and large on the African continent, is that something that has to be the benchmark in terms of how governments control the affairs of the state? regular elections and after two terms 10 years on average there has to be a new sheriff in town as it were why does it have to be that way was it not winston churchill who said all forms i mean democracy is the worst form of government except that all others are worse in other words the limitations that are inherent in democracy why do they have to be deployed in africa as though there were not systems in place before colonialism and the fall of colonialism and independence and independence ushering in these democratic systems that we have now known, why could we not have defaulted to what we know best? And that's not to suggest what we know best is any better or any worse, but rather something that we were familiar with, with which we could arrange our affairs as government in relation to its society and not have to adopt a wholly new system of governance, democracy, which found its way on the continent for the most part through colonialism? Uh, well, one of the problems on the African con continent, some guys on the listeners, perhaps, is uh, uh, the African continent depending on a model that were imposed or even uh, brought to the African continent as to be the sole uh, model that fits the purpose for the Africa for the African continent uh, process of governance. That is one aspect. You look at other uh, countries, for instance, like China, where you have this kind of indigenous uh, 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 systems of governance uh, coming up in managing those society, and therefore uh, a society going according to their own. Uh, um, uh, political systems uh, and the democratic process in a way, whether they incorporate other forms of uh, governments and systems uh, by ways of elections, but the basic has been laid out through uh, indigenous uh, kind of government systems. Whereas on the continent, uh, mostly we are just... Uh, copy and paste some of these systems. And if you ask me whether democracy is uh, uh, the only uh, system of governance that is a fit for the continent, I, I would say no. I, I, would, I would say that Africa should be allowed uh, to kind of uh, re-engineer 
its uh, own political governance uh, um, based on indigenous system that we had there. For example, in a, in a African society, we had a kind of a democratic processes in as much as they were not known as the way we know uh, liberal democracy today. Uh, whereas uh, people could sit around the veranda or anywhere, discuss matters that they develop the community and they find the solutions there. Uh, that was a former democratic system Absolutely. that we have forgotten on the continent. It's exactly and what allowed Rwanda to emerge from that genocide by instituting the Gachacha courts. I mean, from a judicial perspective, if you like, um, and, and Iva does want to chip in here very quickly, but to, 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 to use African systems for African people, for African affairs... I would have thought that is something that we should embrace more and more, more especially when we continue to grapple with the concepts of democracy of the kind we know that we have inherited from the systems of colonialism merging into our um, independent systems. Rwanda is the perfect example in terms of, I'm not talking at a political level, but just in terms of how state matters can be resolved using indigenous systems to engage society towards a progress. That's just a point I'm making. I know Ivor has a follow-up point about something different, though, but nonetheless a point he wants to address. Yes, I'm, uh, I'm a sort of unapolog unapologetic Democrat here, and I think um, one could easily argue that uh, pre-colonial African societies have, uh, have uh, long traditions of, 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 of what we might call proto-democratic proto practice. I mean... Mm -hmm. If you look at even if you look at sort of uh, Nguni societies uh, prior to Shaka, for example, the tyranny of Shaka, compared to the Cape of the same period of the 18th century, 19, early 19th century, it's quite clear that politically, technologically they're not as advanced, but politically they're way more advanced than say Cape society. There's a rule of law. Uh, the the chief, the paramount chief, is not a despot. He's uh, accountable to a to a council. Um, there's um, there's extraordinary tolerance to strangers and to and to foreigners and mm -hmm. an ability to integrate them. Uh, there's no slavery. These are not slave societies. So politically, these are these are these are these are, these are, these are very advanced societies by by our own by our own measure. But I think the important thing which we need to be very, very careful around is what, what is often responsible for some of the governance failures in, in these contexts, in African contexts in the post-colonial period. In my mind, we have to think seriously around questions of government and administration. Um, so drawing on the pre-colonial, what is so interesting is the category of the public servant, of a bureaucrat. Now, I think pre-colonial African societies, there's evidence of of, of, of this category. For example, in Zulu society, for example, there was the unmarried aunt who seemed to have been uh, a representative of the state, representative of, 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 of the polity, and administering a whole range of functions on behalf of, on behalf of, on behalf of the chief. We know, for example, the, the, the idea of the, of the modern bureaucrat, the Mandarin, for example, comes from China. So these are not necessarily Western conceptions that are imposed. The idea of, of, of bureaucracy, the idea of professional, a, a, a professional category of administrators, this is not necessarily a Western conception. So we should be careful not to reject um, administration, bureaucracy, as somehow an, as a Western imposition. I think these are histories which are indigenous to Africa, but they're also indigenous to histories uh, of which are part of which are part of the part of the global South. And I think we need to draw on them and and think or think of their relevance. And that's certainly the kind of work that that I'm trying to do. Your comment on that, Nixon? Yeah, uh, uh, while I agree in part with uh, the prof, there I think it's it's 
it is worth mentioning that uh, certain uh, aspects of the administrative uh, public ad- administration has uh, an element of Western imposition on the African continent. Uh, and I can cite quite a few examples, for example, in the case of the Congo or French, uh, for example, with the type of uh, um, colonial uh, approach that they took, uh, the colonial of as, uh, assimilations versus uh, uh, what uh, colonial, colonial uh, as, uh, done by association, you would see that in the, in the British system, they wanted to associate with the chiefs and, and local administrative system from uh, indigenous people. On the other hand, uh, the French wanted to change, uh, to change sort of uh, uh, the African into a, a French, uh, little Frenchman. And you'd see that that had a serious impact on post-colony uh, kind of a state that emerged in, in, in the French colonies at the time. Uh, similarly, when the British came to associate with this, but the, the model was really to impose uh, the Western idea of a public service. And we cannot run away from that, that, uh, well, the history shows that the democratic process and the other indigenous uh, uh, are, are also in Africa, but the reality here is that there has been a, a serious imposition on the African continent, and I think it will be naive for us to run for the, from from that. Let's talk about how corruption found its way, as we certainly now know it, and and from a historical context in engaging the global community in terms of its participation in the corrupting of Africa. It was around cheap labour slavery, and access to mineral deposits on the continent. In other words, funding their respective wealth, particularly Europe and North America. Has globally enough of that been accounted for, do you think? And I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond to that, Nixon, as well as give Ivan an opportunity to punch. Uh, Well, I think from... the historical point of view, and up until today, you know for the fact that nothing has been accounted for. If it, that has been accounted for, we wouldn't be talking about certain countries on the African continent seeking for colonial reparation uh, uh, on the terms of uh, uh, what was done on many of the of the of the of the of the of the, of the African people. Uh, colonial. I mean, slavery itself was in a way a form of a corrupt relationship between those who dealt with racism and, and actually uh, 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 engaging in, in, in a transatlantic slavery and and, and and there is an interesting book wrote by Professor Eric Williams, who, who details kind of uh, how uh, uh, slavery was uh, actually the precursor of capitalism, uh, and therefore ingraining uh, what we, we see called the corrupt uh, 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 system that we see around the world in terms of uh, how uh, companies and many other. Uh, uh, relationship in the mm. business world today. So, 
it's very interesting to see that we don't look at this, but uh, there is always that aspect of vilifying the, the African people uh, that they uh, as if they are the most corrupt, whereas we know that its term will <laughs> way before, uh, or, uh, even from the transatlantic uh, slave trade, uh, that there has been a corruption embedded in the system. Let's leave it there, Nixon. I don't know if Ivor has any final comments to make, even a cursory remark in relation to this conversation. Ivor Chipkin? Just, um, I'm encouraged that I think there's a big step um, in the fight against corruption in South Africa in an unexpected way. I think, um, as we were talking earlier, I think uh, South African cabinet has just passed, uh, just endorsed the, the f- framework on professionalizing the public sector, it's now called. And what it does, it instantiates the separation between political office and administrative office. I think that's a, in other words, it's beginning to recognize the, the autonomy of public servants as, as, as bureaucrats. I think that's a big step in, uh, in reforming government and in the fight against corruption. So I'm quite encouraged by that there's, a, there's, a, there's something happening in South Africa. And local communities, the citizens, need to own these instruments. They need to engage these instruments so that they can better hold their representatives to account. Mr. Nixon Katembo, African Affairs Analyst and Executive Producer for Channel Africa. Thank you so much, sir, for your thoughts. And to you, Ivor, I think you've had a decent night out now. Uh, You're going to go home and reflect on what has been a wonderful broadcast day for you, Dr. Ivor Chipkin, Director of the New South Institute, formerly GAPP. It's 21.38.